Psst. Neha, what's the tea? You mean the novelty? Welcome to The Novelty, a podcast dedicated to books. Not just the Western male-centric books from the high school lit class. We'll also read books by women, people of color, and from around the world. We'll dive into literary technique and character analysis. But don't worry, we aren't afraid to spill the tea and give our unfiltered opinions. Together, we'll redefine the classics. Will today's pick stand the test of time? Keep listening to find out. Hello. Hi. Are you ready for today's episode? I'm so ready. And actually, I'm drinking tea today, which I think is the first time I've been drinking tea while recording. I'm not on brand and drinking coffee because I really need it this Mm. morning. (laughs) That's okay. All forms of caffeine are acceptable. So today we are going to India, Mm. our homeland, starting off with the Palace of Illusions which is a retelling of the Indian epic Mahabharat. We also have a special guest on this episode. Once we talk about the Palace of Illusions, we are welcoming Mishika from Brown Girl Bookshelf on Instagram to talk a little bit about their mission and what her experience has been reading the Vakarani's books. We are so excited to have them on, so stay tuned for that after our discussion of the Palace of Illusions. So... Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni writes this story from Draupadi's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, the story is distilled down to its very basics. The story of the Mahabharat is of two feuding families who are cousins. They have the same grandfather. And it's about their right to own the kingdom. And there is other insults and issues weaved in there. And it all culminates in a big battle between these two families. And on the quote-unquote good side, or the winning side, are five brothers, the Bandavas, and they're fighting against the Gauravas, their cousins. And the five Bandavas marry one woman, Draupadi, and she is the narrator of this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it gives like a fresh perspective to the Mahabharata. And this is just a disclaimer from me. I have not read the Mahabharata. The only reason why I know the stories is because my dad has read it and he tells the stories to us sometimes. So I've never actually read the Mahabharata text before. So with a lot of the stuff, it, some of the information was new. But most of the characters I've heard of before and maybe didn't know like their full story, including Draupadi. I think basically all I knew about her was that she was like a bitter soul oh really interesting oh i had never had that impression (laughs) and then i guess it's just like the way that it's told based off how you read it the first time or the second time or whatever but yeah i knew that that about her and i knew that she had five husbands and that was kind of the end of it so i think (laughs) this book gave me a lot of information from her perspective yeah i have also never read the actual text of the and. In a couple episodes, we are going to do a compare and contrast, and in that one, we'll dive a little bit deeper into the actual Mahabharata and how it crops up and what the differences are between this book and then the other India book we're doing, The Great Indian Novel. But I know the Mahabharata only from 
just cultural references, and I read the Amar Chitrakatha. But the Amar Chitrakatha, which is a set of comics that a lot of Indian kids were exposed to when we were growing up. Maybe it's a 90s kid thing. But for some reason, I never got into it. I don't know why. Oh, really? Yeah. I loved them. But the Amar Chitrakatha for the Mahabharat is three gigantic volumes. And there's like 10 different exiles. Like they just keep going on exile. And I just, it was too much for me to handle. And of all the stories, I definitely knew the Ramayana much more than the Mahabharata. Yeah. So reading this book, I knew the overall structure and most of the characters, but a lot of the little subplots were new to me. And because there's so many characters that are named, I'll go through a couple of them before we get into it. So we mentioned Draupadi. In this book, she's called Panjali. She has some other names um, throughout history, but she is the daughter of Draupad. Her brother, she calls Dri. What's his full name? Drishtadyamna. Drishtadyamna. <laughs> And then Krishna is kind of a background presence for everybody. And he's a reincarnation of Vishnu, who's one of the three reincarnations of God. Uh, or not reincarnations. Vishnu is a representation yes, yes. of God. So that's her immediate family. And then the Pandavas are the sons of Kunti, is the mom. But she's actually only the biological mom to the first three, who are Yudhishthir, Bhim, and Arjun. And then the two younger sons, Nakul and Sahadev, are the twins who just kind of get left be Like, they have no real... <laughs> they have a different mother, Madri. Yeah, right? Pandu and Ma- Madri. Yeah, so Pandu is the father of all five of them. And then on the other side, the Kauravas are... The versions I've heard, there's a hundred of them. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't go into it in this book, but there's a story about how that came about. And their mother is Gandhari. And their father is Dhritarashtra, who's blind. Another character who appears a lot is Pishma, not to be confused with Bhima. Um, Pishma is a grandfather figure to all of them, and I think those are the main players. I think also this book has a lot of involvement of Karna, who is Duryodhan's, which is the eldest of the hundred sons, and Duryodhan's best friend is Karna. If you know the Mahabharata, you know his true family ties, but in this book, it's kind of kept secret for most of the book. And all we know about him is that he was raised by a chariot driver and was found like by the river. And Duryodhan kind of took him in and gifted him a kingdom to rule. Yeah, so I think those are the main players. And now we can dive into our themes and discussion. What theme did you pick? I So like I said, the only thing I really knew about Draupadi or Panchali is that from what my dad told me, and that, that she was really bitter and stubborn. And <laughs> and so I kind of kept that as my theme, but I changed the word to assertiveness because I know that's a big personality trait in Draupadi, and I wanted to see if that held true and how it affected the storyline. What about you? I picked Appearances. And I think that concept comes up first in the title. It's called the Palace of Illusions. And appearances can sometimes be an illusion. Especially in this book, there's a lot of points during the story where Panjali, because she chooses, so she's born as Draupadi, but Draupadi just means daughter of Draupad. And she doesn't like being called that. So she chooses to be known as Panjali. So there's a lot of times during the book where Panjali bases things on appearances. 
like initially she has to judge suitors based on not even their actual appearance, but initially she's shown their portraits. And then she pays a lot of attention to the palaces that they visit. When they redo the Hastinapur Palace, she notices some of the same flowers as their palace. And so just throughout, it kept kind of cropping up. And I wanted to see if that played an illusion for her or if the appearances were deceiving or how they helped her in making her choices and the evolution of her thought process. The one thing I wanted to talk about before we talk about the story is this is a retelling that we're reading. And even though I'm not as familiar with the Mahabharata as the Ramayana, I still know the overall story. And it's funny that as I was reading, it wasn't like I was like, oh, I know this story. I was reading and I was waiting for the next part. I was like, what's going to happen at the Swayamvar? Who's she going to choose? I don't know if my mind is thinking like, oh, is the outcome going to be different in this retelling? Or is it that you know the big parts and then you're waiting to hear the little in-betweens to fill in the gaps so that that was kind of funny yeah because i think that with retellings you never really know how true to the original story they're going to be and i think that was the question i was i was asking myself throughout the book the same as you i felt like i was in suspense the whole time i was reading because maybe it's because i forgot or just the way it was written i i was like waiting for the next big thing to happen Mm -hmm. so the whole story centers around panjali i wanted to talk about her journey and the feminist thread that gets weaved throughout the book. So I mentioned how it starts with her giving herself her own name because she mm-hmm. doesn't want to be referred to just daughter of a man. But what do you think of, of her as a character and how she transforms throughout the book? Well, I think it starts off with she goes to see a sage named Vyasa, who's actually the true narrator of the Mahabharata. Mm-hmm. And he tells Jagwati that her new name will be Panchali. And the kingdom that Draupad rules is Panchala. And so she kind of wants to transform herself to someone who is one with the people of Panchala. And so I think that was the first step to her character arc. But I think this book did such a great job of explaining character development of all the characters, but especially Draupadi, of course. In terms of the theme that I picked, which was assertiveness, she kind of shows that in the very beginning of the book when she is growing up with three, her brother. She's kind of wanting to break out of these patriarchal norms of, oh, the women have to learn to sew and the men have to learn to fight. Mm-hmm. And that characteristic of her throughout the book does not change. Though she grows a lot as a person, I think it's so important with character development to not change who the character is, but still show growth in their actions. Yeah, and she is very much the same person at the beginning and the end, but the thing that the author focuses on is the thought process and the perspective. I think she goes through a lot of change in her outlook on things. Like, even... I was thinking, why is she so attached to this palace? Like, she kind of comes back and forth, and she's so heartbroken when the palace is going to be destroyed. I think it's because a lot of what happens throughout the book, she starts losing faith in people. Like, every person she puts faith in, maybe aside from Krishna, but even that, to some degree, has let her down. Mm -hmm. And so as she goes, she kind of attaches herself to more... I guess you can call it materialistic, but to her, it's more solid and unchanging. These pa- like a palace is a place she can call home and some place she can go back to. And it's not going to betray her the way her husbands did or the way her brother and father did yeah. or all these other people that she tries to trust and then can't 
really let herself. I also think the Palace of Illusions is a symbol for her success. Because I think she, growing up, has always felt like she was living in her brother's shadow, not being given the same treatment from their father. And just in general, just kind of being tucked away and hidden. And I kind of got the feeling that her father was kind of afraid of her because of the prophecy that she had. What was the prophecy exactly? I don't remember it exactly, but there's a couple components. One part is what she says at the Swayamvar or the choice she makes then. Another one is about when they're at Hastinapur visiting the Korvas and Yudhishthira and Duryodhana are playing at dice and what happens there and that choice she makes will affect history. But I don't remember the exact wording. I think in general, they just say that her prophecy is that she is going to bring a great war to their family. And yeah. that she's going to change the history. And so... Which is so typical, <laughs> right? Like, she is just being swept up in the storm of male egos mm-hmm. and foolish actions. And they're like, oh, it's your fault. <laughs> Not all these men who made horrible decisions and literally gambled on their family and wife as it's, it's their property. Yeah. So everyone's basically kind of afraid of her because everybody knows that she has this immense power within her to make this change. And Draupadi, just as a character, is a little, not a little, very short-tempered and kind of dramatic and attention-seeking. Mostly out of- You think so? Yeah, that's the the vibe I got. Is that not the vibe you got? Not really. Really? I can see the first part where she could be a little dramatic and she makes very quick- Impulsive. Yeah, quick, quick judgments and changes her mind quickly or, yeah, acts impulsively. But I don't know that I, I guess maybe she's a little attention seeking. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that it's yeah. because she didn't receive attention growing up because all the attention was on her brother and she was constantly craving love and craving affection. And that that's just what comes out of not getting that as a child, I think. Yeah. And I think also more than wanting attention, she doesn't like the way she gets attention. Like, she doesn't enjoy having this prophecy about her, and she doesn't like the way that people look at her and treat her. She wants them to pay attention to her for other reasons, and that is something she has no control over. Yeah. So I think because she's attention-seeking and all the things I just mentioned, she has this love for the palace because it does all the things for her. She feels like the palace loves her, and the palace exists for her, And everybody who visits this palace is in awe. And so it gives her that attention and that validation and that acceptance that she's been craving all of her life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which she first tries to get from Arjun and her husband's. And then she's like, well, they all suck. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, What did you think of the rivalry between Panchali and Kunti? Which I think exists more in the first half of the book. Yeah. So Kunti is... Her mother-in-law, basically. Pandava's mm-hmm. mom. Yeah, her, her mother-in-law. And I always think, like, especially in Bollywood, Tollywood drama, there's always, like, this animosity towards a mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law. I don't know why that exists and why that's, like, it's so common. Because I- It's because Indian boys are all such bad mama's boys. <laughs> that's why. And the reason is the mothers. <laughs> we just have to rename this episode that men suck, basically. <laughs> so I think this very typical storyline, the this hatred towards each other. It's like there isn't enough space in this palace for two powerful women, mm-hmm. apparently. But I think 
Chapati's personality is that she, again, like I said, is kind of just is craving this validation and affection. But she also has this ego about her that she doesn't want to give in to people. And she wants to stand up for herself and be assertive. And, and so she wants to please Clinty, but also wants to make sure that she knows what she's doing is wrong by like being mm-hmm. passive aggressive or saying things that, that have may have a double meaning and not really truly caring for each other in any sense. They're just kind of like playing these games the whole time. Yeah, I wish, because you had talked about earlier that there's a lot of character development in this book. I wish there had been a little bit more of Kunti. Mm -hmm. Because especially later, now we're officially getting into spoilers. (laughs) I don't know if you can spoil a 3,000-year-old story. but (laughs) (laughs) Especially later when we find out that Karna is Kunti's son. Draupadi has, or Panjali, same thing. She has a little bit of a thought process where she thinks she can maybe identify or sympathize with Kunti about what she was going through but we never get that from Kunti herself about why she made that decision what was going on when that happened and how did that affect her in her later years as the queen and then as the mother of the Pandavas and I wish I know the book is from Panjali's perspective but I wish we had gotten a little bit more of that because I think it would have helped with that dynamic. Yeah, I think we just needed closure because near mm-hmm. the end of the book, Draupadi doesn't hate Kunti anymore. I think she yeah. has like a little bit of reservations towards why she kept this huge secret. And Kunti also kind of used Draupadi as a way to bring Karna back to the family, which obviously doesn't feel good. But near the end, you could tell that Draupadi had kind of let a lot of that go and started to truly care for her like as a mother and then Kunti decides that she wants to move on from this life and move on to the next life and Draupati I think they say that she kind of understands why Kunti would do that but they don't really have like a conversation or like a goodbye Mm -hmm. or a way to close that chapter in any way Mm -hmm. yeah I I didn't know what led Panchali to make that decision to go to the Himalayas with her husbands based on how she had been for the whole book. I don't know. Because I think Panchali is more more loyal to her husbands than her husbands were to her. So in the middle of the book, all five brothers get banished to the forest for 12 years. Because the eldest brother, Yudhishthir, bets on literally all possessions of his family and loses everything. And also gets no slack for it. So I'm like... Yeah, literally nobody blames him. Yeah, I'm like, you just bet your entire... Not only your life away, but your whole family's life away. And Mm -hmm. so they get banished for 12 years in the forest. And Draupadi does not get banished. But she decides to go with them because she's loyal to her husband. She feels like she needs to be there for them. Also out of spite to be like, you did this to me, so I will suffer too. Kind of thing. (laughs) So I think... But that's like, what is it? Something your nose to spite your face? I don't know that saying. You don't know the saying? Hold on. (laughs) Oh, it's like cutting off one's nose to spite one's face. Where it's like you do something that's entirely self-destructive just out of spite, mm-hmm. but it's just hurting you. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the same reasons why she went to the forest was the same reasons that she decided to go up to the Himalayas with her husbands. Mm-hmm. Just maybe not as much out of spite, but maybe yeah. more out of loyalty. But on her way up, she really starts to regret her choice. I think she... Mm-hmm. But I think she had already had her purpose in this life and she didn't have any much more to give 
so it made sense for her to move on to her next life. But yeah, she should have just bad bossed her way to the top <laughs> until her last dying breath. Yeah. I mean, I think when I had my whole life, when I've heard the story about the Mahabharat, when I was little, I always thought it was so cool that Dropli had five husbands. I was like, wow, like usually men have a bunch of wives, but she's a bunch of husbands. But in this book, it didn't feel progressive. It felt still very uh, misogynistic. Yeah. That she was like the property of five men. And it was even more degrading that she had to be shared by five men. And most of the men had other wives. Mm-hmm. And the other weird thing was that how this five husband thing worked out was that she was one year with one husband in order mm-hmm. from eldest to youngest and that just kept repeating and every single time she was go to a new husband she would be quote unquote new again and i was like what like yeah it's <laughs> so ugh it's like you're using an object and then like refurbishing it and then discarding it yeah and then it comes back so to you gross. in 5 years and you just do the same thing again yeah but i i thought it was true to However these stories originally were and however society was at that time, I don't believe a lot of very nationalist people or people who are like pro-tradition, religion, whatever you want to call it, will say that things used to be like perfect, like there was no issues like men and women, there's much more equality. And I just don't think that's true. Like every society, aside from some of the minor exceptions of matriarchal societies throughout history, have been very patriarchal and have subjugated women. And so I think it was true to that. And there were little moments that came through where she was trying to assert herself that were believable to me. Because the comparison I think of is Kaikai which is a new book that I read just this year. And in that book, it's a retelling of the Ramayan from the perspective of Ram's, not his direct mother, but his dad's wife. And in that book, there were a lot of instances of feminism that felt too modern. Like it was just jarring that a lot of modern 21st century ideas of feminism and progression were put onto this ancient society Mm -hmm. that just didn't make sense to me. It felt forced. It felt forced. And I didn't feel that with with this book. I Mm -hmm. think she still had a lot of moments where she individually was trying to assert herself within this oppressive structure. I think I did see a couple instances where it didn't didn't fit with like Mm -hmm. the Mahabharat text maybe. And that was, I think, maybe they were like remarketing this book specifically like oh it's like a feminist book where the main character supports polygamy Mm -hmm. and like she didn't choose this but where does it say that like just online like goodreads they're like oh Oh. this is so progressive because she's like in a polyamorous relationship and i don't know but that's not endorsed by the book i think that's people just people misinterpreting it and i think those things i feel are forced like i don't know like yeah But that's external of how it was received by people who are interpreting it from the perspective of the time we live in. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Kaikai, I felt like it was weaved in the book. Yeah, I haven't read Kaikai. The other part, we'll get a little bit more into this when we talk about the Mahabharata as a whole. But from a kind of zoomed out perspective, what do you think actually started the war? I think I could pinpoint maybe two things. One being just the general animosity between... Duryodhan and his cousins like 
that started when they were growing up. And I think that mm-hmm. could have been stopped very easily. They're all living in the same house when they're, or I don't know if they were living in the same house when they were growing up, but they were always together. That type of relationship can be fixed when you're young. And mm-hmm. it, it wasn't. And it's not like they didn't have good motherly figure, figures at the time. They, Gandhari and Kunti are like one of the greatest mother figures of like history. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what it was when they were younger that started that kind of like rift between them. And then the second thing was definitely the Yudhishthir yeah, his life away. <laughs> what about you? What do you think? Yeah, I think there's a lot of components. Obviously, there's never one mm-hmm. thing that leads to war or something, such a cataclysmic event. But what you were saying, it's kind of a failure of the elders. Mm-hmm. Like they could have stopped this from the beginning or stopped it at a lot of points along the way, but they didn't intervene, best case, or they goaded them on, worst case. And that felt very irresponsible. There was a lot of pride and this concept of honor, which that's a whole other discussion. Like, is honor a real thing? Is it BS as an excuse to make poor choices? Like, you destroy the whole book. His one thing is honor. And righteousness. And righteousness. And how – I don't understand how you can call it righteous to sacrifice your family, lie to them, go against – like the people you love just to do quote unquote the right thing so i think there was a lot of that involved and what i don't fully understand either is this right thing is kind of prophesied like all these things are prophesized and it's like those are things that are written for them and then they just it's like more their duty to carry them out so i don't know if righteous is the right word i think it's more like dutiful but again it's like misdefined yeah like you're your idea of duty is something that is not loyal to your family yeah, or your, or his greater responsibility as theoretically the future king to his people and his kingdom. And they kept saying throughout the book, once we find out who Karna actually is, that, oh, if, if you go to the five brothers and you tell them that you're the eldest brother, then this war can be stopped. And that didn't make sense to me either mm-hmm. because I was like, oh, like – you, you're fighting these people who you're literally been taught to hate. And then one of them comes up to you and says, oh, actually, like, I'm your older brother. It doesn't just stop. Yeah. It doesn't just go away after that. Like, just like, oh, it, Kunti could have prevented this whole thing if she had only said the truth about who Karna actually is. Yeah. It's not super believable because of how many things were involved mm-hmm. getting them to the war. I, I have been rereading War and Peace this year, and there's a chapter I just finished that talks about free will and all these forces that conspire leading to war. And what his theory is, is that individuals have free will in a lot of small choices. Like you can make decisions in a lot of small ways, but there are larger forces at play that are beyond any one person's control. And that made me feel like that could be true for this book too Mm -hmm. because like you were saying i don't know that that one action could have stopped this from happening when there were so many actions and so many people involved in leading to that point yeah i loved draupadi and krishna's relationship because it i felt like draupadi loved krishna more than like yeah like the way she wrote all the passages because she looked for him in times of need and he would show himself in some way or the other. And there's this passage near the end of the book where Draupadi is moving on into her, like, her next life. And Krishna's there holding her hand. And he's like, 
think of all the happy memories. And Draupadi's like, I can't even think of one. And Krishna asks her again, like, you can't even think of just one. And then all these memories flash into her of happy moments where Krishna was there. She just forgot that he was there or the moment was just so fleeting that she forgot about it. And it it showed throughout her whole life the moments that Krishna was making her laugh and making her happy. And that whole passage like just warmed my heart so much. It was so beautifully written and it just made me love their relationship so much. Is that the passage you picked? No. <laughs> okay I, there's so many passages in yeah this, in this book it was hard for me to pick but no that one was i'm gonna hold in the gatekeep so that you guys read the book because <laughs> <laughs> you, everybody needs to read this book okay so then why don't you share the passage that you did pick okay this is for context when draupadi is in the middle of her like infatuation with karna she's still living in her home palace with three and her father she hasn't yet married anybody and so she's still young in this passage and she's just like in conflict about everything that's happening in her life through the long night out of love for three i tried harder than ever before to bar karna from my mind but can a sieve block the wind fragments of stories floated in my head women who had saved their husbands by countering their ill luck with their virtue perhaps i could do the same for karna in the midst of that hope, a regret leaped up like a leopard. Why hadn't Three sidestepped his fate when he had had the chance? I imagined him carefree under a canopy of gigantic mahogany trees, his brow erased of the creases that marred his handsomeness. But the next moment, I was proud of his resolution, the way I had been of Karna for facing the angry Brahmin. I knew I should not compare them, but my loyalty should be aimed only toward my brother. Yet as I swayed between sleep and waking, the two men began to melt together in my mind. How similar their nature and their destinies were, pressing them both towards tragedy, forcing them into acts of dangerous nobility. No matter how skilled they were at battle, ultimately it would not help them because they were forever defeated by their conscience. What cruel god fashioned the net of their minds this way so they could never escape it? And what traps had he set up for me? Well, that's good. I know. There's so many passages that are very similar to this one where they're just like, makes you question everything. I want to listen to this on audiobook. I think when I was reading this book, I was a bit more preoccupied by the plot and the story and trying to remind myself of like what events I remembered and what I didn't and connecting it with things I'd heard before that I didn't pay attention to a lot of the, I don't know if philosophical is the right word, but these kind of like theoretical and like internal monologues that she writes about. Mm -hmm. This whole book is an internal monologue. Yeah. So I think it's just the way that she has like these similes and alliterations and just she uses like every type of literary weapon. <laughs> like the way she says, can a sieve block the wind? Who thinks of that? Because mm -hmm. that's so it's such a pretty way of thinking about like thoughts. Mm -hmm. What did you think of her writing throughout the book? I liked it. I didn't fall in love with it. I think um, the way she writes is very accessible. Mm -hmm. I think maybe the reason I didn't fall in love with it because there was a lot of repetition. So like that passage you talked about, like, can a sieve stop the wind? She says that after she... So first she says it in kind of like colloquial accessible language and mm -hmm. then she puts a metaphor. And I think that's not how I'm used to reading about things. I, I'm used to having less... One or the other... 
yeah, less information that then evolves both meanings. And so I think just my personal preference of how language is used is that like one sentence or one thing has multiple meanings, where she has those multiple meanings in mind, and then she writes all of them. Yeah, so it felt like redundant. Felt a little redundant, but I did like her writing style. I thought it was very easy to read, and there were some really pretty passages. I I thought it was very engaging and musical, lyrical. Mm-hmm. Like I like this paragraph specifically felt like a poem to me. Um, maybe in too many words, like you said, but just in general, I think she knows how to write emotions well, mm-hmm. and I think that's a really good skill to have when you have first person dialogue. So that you can really feel for the protagonist and understand their emotions. And so, I don't know, it just made, made me feel very connected to the, to the main character. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that she does such a good job of getting into the head of Panchali or this version of Thropathy that she's writing about. And I, when I was reading, I had wanted a little bit more about the characters, others outside of her, like the brothers. I felt like their character traits were very matched up with other tellings of the story that I'd heard and they weren't explored as much. But I think when you're telling it from one character's perspective, it's hard to do that. Mm-hmm. And I would read this book. If she wrote this book from every single character's perspective, like Yudhishthir, Bhim, Karna, Krishna, I would read all of them because yeah. I just want this level of introspection and character depth from the other characters also because she did it so well with Panchali. Yeah, there's been hundreds and hundreds of of retellings of the Mahabharata and just retellings in general. I'm always a little bit, I err on the side of caution when I read retellings because they can either be good or bad. There's never like an okay retelling. Like they're either really good or just a total miss. I really enjoy retellings and I think probably it's for the same reason that I rewatch TV shows. I, I kind of like the comfort of knowing what's happening, but then you get some new elements. I don't know that I've read really terrible retellings, but I agree with what you say that if you are not getting the characters right or the themes and morals right, which is important in like these great epics, then it can really miss the mark. Yeah. The one retelling that I not I'm not sure if I can do anymore is Romeo and Juliet. Because oh. <laughs> that story's been, like, just torn apart. It's and, like, just been people, beaten to death. Yeah, and people, like, sprinkle a little bit of, like, Romeo and Juliet in there, and then they call it a retelling, and I'm like, this isn't... Well, it's been done so much that the common cultural imagination of Romeo and Juliet is something different than what the original text is. Yeah. Yeah. Should we move on to our ratings? Filter the chai. <laughs> yeah, let's filter the chai. So I think I give this a seven and a half out of 10. I kind of reasons I've already mentioned that I really enjoyed a lot of the introspection, but I did feel like some of it was a bit repetitive and I wanted a little more development of some of the other characters, but overall I really enjoyed it as a retelling and as a story on its own. I gave this book a nine. Really? Yeah, I really liked it. I enjoyed reading it. I think maybe because of what you said it it mm-hmm. is an easy read doesn't require a lot of analysis and i think even if you read this book with zero knowledge of the Mahabharata, you would still enjoy it i think there's like small references to other plot lines in the Mahabharata or other stories 
but you don't really necessarily have to know them to enjoy the story. And just the way that it was written, it's just kind of refreshing to see the Mahabharata in the perspective of a woman. Do you think it stands the test of time? And my answer is yeah. I think so too. I was borderline, but I haven't encountered that many retellings of the Mahabharata or versions of it that are this accessible. Mm-hmm. I think that was the biggest barrier growing up to me reading it or hearing mm-hmm. about it because the Ramayan is a little bit more manageable and the Amartya version told pretty much the whole story and you could even read the Valmiki like written text and it's fairly easy to follow because it's very linear but the Mahabharata has so many subplots and tangents and other characters a lot of which don't get mentioned in this version but that makes it very hard to access and learn about and I think for it's like overwhelming to think it's overwhelming if you're interested in learning about it it's like a lot I think this would be like a good starting point yeah like just like as like a first book yeah I agree and I think if this is the only version that people read it's still a good version I wouldn't be like Mm -hmm. oh but it's not the real thing because what is a real thing when you're talking about like a thousand year old epic right what even is the original version Mm -hmm. so I would say yeah for that reason Yay. <laughs> I would have punched you in the face. Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> start lying from now on. <laughs> um, what's your shelf discovery? Okay, so the first time ever I'm doing a shelf discovery book that I have not read. And I know that Ooh, doesn't make sense. Controversial. But, <laughs> but once I explain, it will make sense. So Chitra Ban- Banerjee, the author of this book, wrote another book called The Force of Enchantments. And that book is the Ramayan in the perspective of Sita. Once I heard that, I bought it immediately. Because I was like, <laughs> I love this book. Sita as a character, I think, I again, Ramayan I don't know that much about, but I know like the general story. But I've always like been intrigued in the character of Sita. I think she's like a lot more calm and loving and caring. And I know we didn't talk about it much in this episode, but Draupadi isn't really a mother figure. Mm-hmm. She is honestly doesn't like even know the names of her sons but sita is like more of a motherly figure i I think and so i think it's going to be a very different book than this one but still the same vibes so i'm curious as to how she because you can tell she's trying to put the woman's perspective and weave some feminism into this book and i wonder how she will put it into that book because i Mm -hmm. always found the Ramayana very misogynistic, much more so than the Mahabharata, with the whole story of Sita being pure and she's so docile and submissive. I was like, this is BS. So mm-hmm. I'm curious what angle she takes with that book. Yeah, yeah, me too. Mine is actually not a myth or epic retelling, which I was going to suggest, but I felt like a lot of the good ones are pretty well known. Like we talked about Kaike, that one's a new one. And then Madeline Miller is a big favorite of Greek mythology retellings. But the book I picked was The 20th Wife by Indus and the Raisin. And that is a historical fiction. If anyone's familiar with some of the history of India, it is about one of the Mughal wives, Noor Jahan, who was the wife of Jahangir. And Jahangir, as an emperor, was not that famous or didn't do that much, wasn't as beloved as Akbar, his dad, or Shah Jahan, his son. But his wife, Nur Jahan, was one of the most famous of the 
Mughal wives, and she had a lot of influence on policy and how the Mughal Empire expanded. So The Twentieth Wife is a book about her from her perspective, and from when she's a child all the way to when she becomes Empress of the Mughal Empire. Um, I read this many years ago, and I loved it, and I think it would be a good fit for anyone who likes The Palace of Illusions. Yeah, that sounds really good. So before we get into our next week's episode, like Shruti mentioned at the beginning of this episode, we are having a special guest. Her name is Mishika from the Brown Girl Bookshelf. Let's welcome her on. All right, so today we have a special guest. We are welcoming Mishika from Brown Girl Bookshelf on Instagram. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so excited to talk to you. She was just telling us a crazy wedding story, which seems to be kind of just our lives in general, <laughs> busyness. But um, welcome. We would love to hear a little more about you. And we're going to talk about uh, the Vakarini as an author and some things about being brown girls and reading and lots of great stuff. Awesome. Thanks so much um, for having me. Like I said, Neha and I have been like, Instagram buddies for some time now, but we've never had the opportunity to be face to face. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. this is really nice. And Shruti, it's nice to meet you. I've been following following your podcast for a little bit now and uh, kind of love the community that you two are creating. It very well aligns with what Shri and I are building too. Yeah. So like you said, I've been following you guys and I saw I used to have a book account and that's how me and Brown Girl Bookshelf kind of connected the first time, which is probably two maybe even three years ago because I think it was like right at the beginning of the pandemic but I just started to want to share my love for reading online and saw that there was like a big South Asian community out there that I'd never heard of before and I think your guys' platform is doing a great job of shining some light onto that community so do you want to talk to us a little bit more about Brown Grove Bookshelf and like your goals Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm Mishika. I'm one half of Brown Girl Bookshelf. Shri is my co-founder and lover in all things books. We actually met during undergrad at Santa Clara University, and we quickly developed this friendship based on many shared interests. And one of those interests was storytelling. So we started Brown Girl Bookshelf in August of 2020, which basically evolved from ongoing and long-distance conversations we were having about books and current events. So to your question, what is BGB? It's a global community of 27,000 people to date, um, and it's a marketing engine that's dedicated to highlighting South Asian writing and creative work. So Shri and I basically curate South Asian reading recommendations on social media, so on Instagram at Brown Girl Bookshelf, and through our monthly newsletter on Substack. We basically fill this, what we think, crucial gap in the book industry by showcasing a really wide range of South Asian stories to help combat this monolithic definition of what it means to be South Asian. which means we champion a multitude of narratives that relate to the subcontinent and to the South Asian diaspora. Neha, you touched on this briefly, but since its inception, which was almost three years ago, it's hard to believe it was three years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, almost exactly. We've basically developed relationships with 
mission-aligned brands, publishing houses, authors, and media groups to champion new and dated South Asian stories. So you'll see a good amount of throwback posts um, as well as new release posts. And to date, we've shared 400 book recommendations. Wow. Uh, yeah, 150 book reviews, but we still think we have a ways to go. Uh, we've positioned ourselves as, as thought leaders in the book industry, but we hope to advocate for more meaningful improvements to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and to just encourage other aspiring writers to publish their stories because there's clearly an audience that's willing to listen and um, is keen to to resonate with what they have to produce. That's awesome. I ever since I started following your account, I have seen so many interesting stories and books and other creative works that I don't think I would have been exposed to otherwise, even being South Asian myself with a lot of the book lists you get and bookshop recommendations. I think we are on the right track. There's definitely more South Asian authors I see in the new bestsellers than I probably did 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, but you guys are doing a great job of really pulling out those hidden gems that wouldn't otherwise get exposure and like exposing me to new new works. Thank you. I think it's like a, a massive educational process for Shri and I, too, because three years ago we could probably name South Asian titles on like one hand, maybe two hands if we're generous here. And by creating and engaging with the community, we've been able to expand our list and expand our knowledge of authors far beyond what it was in August of 2020. So a lot of people in our community say we've been able to learn a lot through you. And to that, we say we've been able to learn a lot through all of you and just through the engagement that we've gotten. Yeah, that's super cool. You talked a little bit about how you got involved in the online reader community but it sounds like you and Shri both have been readers for a while and that's kind of what helps connect you to do you have any specific bookish habits or in general what kind of reader are you and has that changed since you started the account yeah um so I'm a consistent reader which means I'm always reading something I wouldn't say I'm particularly fast or like to binge through or plow through as many titles but I'm always holding on to something. Mm -hmm. um, I like to straddle the lines between new and old releases and then fiction and nonfiction. So my TBR has a little bit of everything. Um, you'll see my stack of books here, which I know people are listening and won't be able to visually see it, but mm -hmm. it has, let's see, um, a memoir which focuses on the impact of the Chinese Exclusion Act um, on the author's family. Uh, it has a nonfiction book uh, about systemic and structural causes of poverty. There's James Baldwin in there. There's a novel on motherhood and intergenerational trauma. So really just a bit of everything. I hardly reread books. Um, the exception to this is To Kill a Mockingbird, which is um, a favorite of mine from gosh, I think middle school maybe, and Chanel Miller's Know My Name, uh, which is a really challenging book to reread, but one that I just needed to emotionally go through again since mm -hmm. the first time around. That's would, very brave. That's a very yeah, hard book to it's read. a really hard one. Yeah. Um, so I'd say exceptions are made every now and then, but I wish I had the time to revisit my favorites. 
and I can only read one book at a time. I have tried the multi-book approach and um, I struggle with which one to pick up then because I'm sitting there on the couch with both on my lap and while I'm reading one, I'm trying to think about the other so it just doesn't work for, for my brain. And then I'm also one of those people that just takes a book everywhere I go, like Subway, coffee shops. Um, I'll be walking in the park and I want to sit down at some point and read. Um, so the running joke in our family is that like you can't buy Mishika like a purse or give her a bag that's like small because you won't be able to stuff it. <laughs> so uh, I definitely need need something on me at all all times because I get bored very quickly. <laughs> so I need an out. Nice. I, yeah, I have a pretty small bag that I'm able to fit little paperbacks into and people are always really impressed that I stuff it in there because it's just that and my phone. Yeah. (laughs) And that's what I take everywhere. I will say I, um, I bought a Kindle in November. I've been like super anti e-readers my whole life. And I was just traveling so much last year. I, and I, and I never knew what mood I would be in to read something. Like I would be on a plane with a book and I'd be like, I don't want to read this right now, but it's all I have. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the e-reader has been a nice little add to the collection because you can really stuff it in any bag. It takes up no space. So I'm starting to realize the value of it, but I still like crawl back to my paperbacks all the time. Yeah, I think having a physical book is like, there's just no other feeling like it. But I agree. I travel a lot and sometimes I just don't know what book to take with me. So I just grab my my iPad that has like the Kindle app on it and it's just much easier. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of the reason also that I I'm like the opposite. I'm always reading like five books in parallel. And it's partly because I have like my Kindle I'll take with me if I'm going somewhere. And so that's and I'm not taking War and Peace with me. That's my like <laughs> weekend morning with coffee book or like I am such a mood reader that I have to have different modes of accessibility. Yeah, I'm not like that. I right now for the first time I'm reading two books parallelly to each other. The Palace of Illusions and The Great Indian Novel. And we're actually doing both those books on the podcast because they're both um, retellings of the Mahabharata. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that it would be nice to kind of parallelly read them, but it's hard because a lot of the characters have the same names, which I think is adding uh, to like the difficulty and like oh, separating yeah. the books. But yeah, I'm the same as you. I, I have a hard time reading two books at the same time. My brain doesn't work that way. Yeah, I, I wish I wish it did. It would be it would be so much better because I think, Shruti, to your point, like I can be a mood reader too, but then I forced myself out of the mood to be like, no, Mishika, you're reading this right now and you can't pick up another book. Mm-hmm. Um, so that becomes tricky. Speaking of the Vakaruni, so we just finished talking about The Palace of Illusions. That was our book for this week. And you've read her more recent book, Independence. I think that's her latest when it came out last year. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Yeah. Um, so this is my first time reading her work. Um, and it certainly will not be the last time I really enjoyed um, my I think enjoyed is probably a funny word to use for this book specifically since it's so heavy. Mm-hmm. But I certainly enjoyed her character development. And I can speak to that a little bit later. But um, for people who are listening and don't know about the book, um, it's about the impact of 1947 partition of India and Pakistan on three sisters and their wider family unit. 
they certainly love each other a lot. And there's a lot of unwavering love and emotional and sometimes physical support for one another. But they're really unique in their motivations, their desires, their secrets, which eventually draws them physically apart from each other again and again. So I guess to to your question, like, what is it about? You have three sisters, three very different kind of sisters. One, Bria, is super ambitious and passionate in this quest to become a doctor when females are not permitted such vocation. And then you have Deepa, who makes really dangerous choices to pursue love. And then Jamini, who's kind of forced into this life of stagnancy, and she's left behind by her sisters and uh, left to grapple with that as well as household responsibilities and commitment to her mother. So as a reader, I'm taking this all in and I'm holding my breath constantly for a reunion of the sisters. But simultaneously, I'm hoping that wherever they are, they're just living through this polarizing and incredibly dangerous time. So it's like clashing emotions for me and aspirations for characters who are fictional, but feel really, really real. We have a segment at the end of all of our episodes called Filter the Chai, Mm -hmm. where we rate the book on a scale of one to 10. And then we answer the question, will this book stand the test of time and become like a modern classic is what we call it. So if you had to do a Filter the Chai segment with us for this book, what would you say? Yeah, I'm apprehensive to rate a book. Shri and I actually don't rate any books on Goodreads because we can never distill it down to stars since certain authors do things well, like character development, I would say for this one is super strong, but like historical context, I'm not sure I would give it like 10 out of 10. Let's see. I say something she she does really well, and I'm giving you this like diplomatic answer here, but uh, <laughs> I think she's really good at the research element. Like it's very evident to me that she's incorporated historical figures, radio broadcasts, newspaper headlines, and just generally understands the nuances of partition really well. But if you're coming into this never having read a partition story and you're not familiar with these historical figures, I think it's really easy for these names to like slip through the cracks for you and for you to just push all those details aside and then just focus on the sisters and their character development, which could be a good thing. But I think if you're trying to holistically get the full experience that she has written, isn't the best. Like you should be able to follow along in all facets um, of what she's saying. So I'd say that's kind of how I would summarize like what she does well versus what she maybe does just okay for me. Um, Your question of does this book stand the test of time? I have a lot of thoughts on this one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So this question came about because I think very similarly to your mission behind Brown Girl Bookshelf is we want to expose people to books that tell different types of stories. And while we love like Austin, Tolstoy, all these authors that were taught about in school, it's a very, very thin slice of what people in the world experience. And so we ask ourselves this question because we want people to feel like picking up this book, like The Palace of Illusions or some of the other books we've talked about, is as intellectual or as meaningful and enriching as picking up Leo Tolstoy. 
it, it becomes a little bit like bite-sized and catchphrasey, but that's the intent behind the question. Okay. No, I think it's a great question. And honestly, one that I'm going to start asking myself after I finish a lot of books, because there's so much, there's so much out there that like 10 years from now, you would look back and say like, oh, the author like might've messed this one up. I don't feel that way about this book at all. And I was thinking through my rationale here and I'm really uh, in a privileged spot to have grandparents who are still alive and my paternal grandparents have taught me a lot about partition, have told me a lot of stories about their experience living through partition. And so 10, 20 years from now, when we don't have that liberty or I might not have that liberty of having my children learn partition from a first degree source, at least there's literature like this that they can come back to. And I'd say that there's a lot of accuracy in this type of literature that I would feel comfortable with them picking it up as a first or initial exposure into history. I certainly think that you can't put all your eggs in this basket and say, this is the story that will teach you everything about partition. But I do think it's a really good launching point, And I do think it gives a lot of the foundation you might need to understand the nuances of the experience, like the experience of partition for folks that are or were in um, interfaith relationships or were more wealthy than other demographics during this time and kind of the privilege that they had when they were moving or some of the the privileges that were stripped away from them when they were making the migration to what is now present-day India or what is now present-day Pakistan. So I'd say that that was one immediate thought, just it'll stand the test of time because resources like first degree resources might not be available. And then another thought I had is um, it's really important to learn history, but it's really important who you learn history from. And I think Chitra does a really good job with her cast of characters because she provides a lot of different nuances and experiences, and it isn't just one dimensional. So when you pick up this book, you're getting a glimpse into, like I said earlier, this intercast or even interreligious relationship and what that might look like. Um, you're getting a glimpse into what it might look like for you if you didn't have a form of military protection, didn't have that kind of privilege when you were making this migration. And so that's one dimension of, of Chitra doing a really good job. But like another dimension is there's a lot of value in having a strong sense of identity, but there's a lot of value in recognizing that just because you have this identity doesn't mean you're superior from other groups. And um, she certainly puts a lot of emphasis in that um, and empathizing every person's experience. She's saying like everybody has a family that they want to protect. So while certain groups are being incredibly violent, she's also helping you understand where certain groups are coming from without justifying their behavior. She's like creating an empathetic cast of characters. Same thing with one of the love stories, and I don't want to say too much, but there is a sister who falls in love with somebody who belongs to a different faith. And that's a really dangerous thing to do during that time period. Mm -hmm. And readers could so easily dismiss that character and say, you put your family at risk. You did something, quote unquote, wrong 
You should have refrained from having those emotions. But at the same time, she builds like a multifaceted character where you're like, this woman just wants to be loved and she finds that love and security with this man. And um, you can't fault her for that. You wouldn't fault someone for that in this day and age. And like, those are the same emotions she's experiencing just with a different political backdrop. And when so much violence is happening at that time, it's like, why would you want to separate yourself from the person that makes you feel safe and from the person you love when it's not even sure if you'll you'll live for today, tomorrow, et cetera. And so um, that's what I mean by she's built this story in a quote unquote safe space. And as a historical teacher, which she isn't by profession, she's kind of acted as a as a good teacher in helping um, establish at least or plant seeds for readers in this space. So yeah, hearing you talk about this book really makes me want to read it. And um, what you said at the beginning about how if this was the book that people picked up as their first experience reading about the partition, it would be a good representation and a good starting point. That's almost exactly what we said about the Palace of Illusions and how the mm-hmm. Mahabharata and a lot of epics can be kind of intimidating and a lot of versions are not very accessible to even people with some cultural knowledge like us who have heard stories before, but especially people to whom it's entirely new. Um, so that seems like something she does really well in making things accessible and really helping you understand the characters. And then the second thing you said about how she is empathetic towards all her characters, that made me think, Neha, of um, Murmur the of first, bees. yes, the first discussion we had in this season, The Murmur of Bees. But in that book, we talked about how the author has a responsibility to give that empathy to all their characters, regardless of how they're seen in the general public. And that was something we missed in that book that it sounds like she really gave voice to. Yeah, Yeah, I think it makes for a good story to have a balance in both the quote unquote villain and protagonist in the story because it makes things more complex and multidimensional. And it sounds like in independence she did that and that makes me really excited to read it as well yeah there's certainly villains in this story but it isn't it isn't the sisters and I wouldn't say the villains are their like wider support network either they're just Mm -hmm. um folks that she has historically drawn from figures and said like what they did was active like actively wrong and violent and um, there's no good that can be seen in those actions, which I think is an important distinction distinction for her to draw because there's so much wrong and so much pain that was caused during that time that to make everybody empathetic wouldn't have been feasible. Mm-hmm. Um, there is certainly a line of right and wrong and um, certainly characters who cross the line. Yeah. So um, one of the other segments we do on the podcast is Shelf Discovery, where we give one or two book recommendations based on what we've just read. So if you had to come up with something for independence or just the Vaccarini's writing style that maybe people might pick up after reading independence, what would you recommend? Yeah. So we have a, a segment on BGB that we do, which is we pair like modern books books written by non-BIPOC authors with books by South Asian authors. So um, when I paired this book, I paired it with The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. So not a person of color, but an author and a book that I absolutely adore. It's also a sister story, 
also written during, or I guess I shouldn't say also, but it's written during a war period. So as much um, political turmoil and as much violence that's kind of rooted in in this story. But I have a younger sister. And so like the sister element of independence and the nightingale really resonated with me as a reader. So if you're looking for something that um, flies off the shelf and you'll find at any bookstore, then I'd say that's the best bet. There are two, though, that, you know, as a brown woman running account about brown authors, um, I will amplify here. Um, and that is The Parted Earth by Anjali Njeti and The Daughters of Motherai by Rajasri Variar. The Parted Earth is a partition story, also a really great way to to get that foundation going without diving into a nonfiction book about um, all the nuances of partition. And then Daughters of Mother Eye is not um, about partition, but it is a family story. And it's about the bond between a mother and a daughter and like the strength of a family during a really hard period, too. So I think those general themes and focus areas would be really interesting for someone who appreciated independence. All sound great. <laughs> I it, It's making me think like when we were deciding which books to do for our India like world tour, we it, it was hard to decide and every time we picked like picking more than one just kept making us pick more like when you mentioned independence we were like oh should we do independence because the great Indian novel takes place during that time period and then there were so many others like it just keeps branching out I'm like, where do we stop like there's so many great books to pair with each other and and put in conversation with each other yeah this season we're doing around the world and eight tea books India is obviously one of our stops because it holds dear to to our hearts but I mean we have so much passion towards people that we want to represent and that we want to have the whole world and understand and appreciate the authors the same way that we do that's awesome I love I love the focus that you guys took on partition or just the space that you created to speak about it because at first Shrey and I weren't as narrowed in on highlighting partition stories it was like we'll focus on a little bit of everything. It's a very large undertaking to represent brown authors and then also to say brown authors plus different elements of history plus different nuances of identity. And so we've noticed pretty much off the bat, a lot of people DM us to ask us even to date about partition stories. And I think there's something to be said about the different levels of stories like independence, as we've mentioned, is a great starting point. And even, I don't know if I would put it at like the starting line of, I would probably say somewhere in between given the historical context and figures in it. But I think there's still so many other titles that would propel someone from like that initial exposure to an absolute deep dive that even I would like listen to your podcast and be like, somebody give me more recommendations here on this topic. So um, I certainly feel like as you go around figuratively the world and kind of collect other information, it would be really neat to decipher what's a good beginner read versus what's something that's more advanced if somebody wants to do more of a double click on on the theme or on the mm-hmm. issue at hand. Um, I think that's something I might throw out to the, the BGB community and say, like, give us more titles about partition. What are you reading right now that could help us understand some of the more nuances that um, isn't necessarily approached in a fictional way? Yeah, that's awesome. It would be nice to do like a bunch of them all at once and be able to like really hone in, like you said, on the details and the contrasts. Mm-hmm. Neha, do you have anything else? 
No, I think that was it. I think that was a good discussion. And I'm excited for our followers, just if they don't already follow you, to follow you. Their uh, Instagram handle is Brown Girl Bookshelf. They have a newsletter that I'm subscribed to that comes out every month, right? Yeah, every month. And it's just, if you're interested in just learning about South Asian community books and everything that Mishika mentioned already, please follow them and support them. And we would really appreciate that. Thanks so much. Thank you again for having me. This was great. Yeah, of course. Thank you. And that concludes our first episode on India in our world tour. We are staying in India the next episode. Um, and we're going to be reading The Great Indian Novel by Shashi Tharoor. And after that, we'll have an additional bonus episode in which we talk about the Mahabharata and we compare and contrast these two books that we've picked. But just for next week, we're only going to do The Great Indian Novel and also share with you some of the drama around the author that Neha just learned about. (laughs) Yeah, apparently it was in the news nonstop for years, but I somehow did not know what was going on for whatever reason until recently. But it's okay. If you didn't know what was going on either, we will fill you in. Yay. Cool. India. Jay Hin. (laughs) I like how we just went full, like, no shame. We were like, we're going to pick the most Indian things, the (laughs) Mahabharata and the War of Independence. (laughs) It really helped our podcast to rate and review So if you haven't done that already and you're an avid listener, which I'm assuming you are since you made it to the end of this episode, please go ahead and do that. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Novelty. We are your hosts, Neha and Triti, and our music is created by Apurva Koti. We love to hear from you, so send us book recommendations, episode commentary, or even critical feedback. You can find us on Instagram at thenovelty.pod or email us at thenovelty.pod at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading.